Well, hello, everybody. This is Rabbi Dan Levin, and this is Essential Questions. Two years ago, I received a call from a Hollywood producer for Apple TV asking me to consult on an episode of a new series called Extrapolations, which imagines how the world will be 30 years from now. The third episode stars David Diggs as Rabbi Marshall Zucker, who battles the ethical quandaries involved in saving his Miami congregation from the impacts of sea rise. This story hits close to home for us who are among the millions who live near the ocean. Everywhere we wonder what will be the impact of climate change and the essential question, what is our responsibility in the climate crisis? Jewish tradition teaches us to balance two vital and competing needs, to use the amazing natural resources our world provides for their best and most productive use, and to care and protect our planet's fragile ecology. We have known for decades that by putting so much carbon into our atmosphere, humanity is changing our planet's climate, causing a greenhouse effect that will push our planet's temperature higher. And despite the clarity of the science around that reality, humanity has done precious little to address the calamities that climate change will produce. Environmental scientist Bill McKibben writes, Let's be, for a while, true optimists. Let's assume we're capable of acting together to do remarkable things. This could well be the motto for our guest today, Rabbi Jenny Rosen. Rabbi Rosen is the founder and CEO of Dayenu, a new organization mobilizing the American Jewish community to confront the climate crisis with spiritual audacity and bold political action. Rabbi Rosen has spent more than two decades leading Jewish nonprofit organizations, advocating for social change and creating dynamic new initiatives at the heart of the Jewish social justice movement. She was my classmate at the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion, where we shared the Wexner Graduate Fellowship. She has twice been named one of the forward's 50 most influential Jews in America. Thank you so much for being with me and with our community on Essential Questions. Wonderful to be here. So, Jenny, tell us a little bit about your background. What was it in your life that drew you not only to the rabbinate, but to really focus your career on social justice work? So, um, first of all, it's just wonderful to be with you. I have wanted to be a rabbi since I was 14. Um, grew up in a family with a strong Jewish identity, and we're part of what it meant to be a Jew was to be engaged in the world and working for social justice. And that's really been my work for the last 25 plus years is mobilizing the American Jewish community around issues of social and economic justice. But that really for me always meant um, what I think of as like people-oriented issues, poverty, immigration, hunger. And I think like a lot of people, I thought about the environment as something a little bit more out there and was less viscerally connected. And that really started to change for me. I, I think like many people in recent years, had an awakening to the climate crisis, to realizing that it is coming much more furiously and faster than we expected. And at the time, I was actually working at HIAS and hearing the stories of refugees and witnessing their pain and imagining what a billion climate refugees would be, which is the number that experts are predicting if we don't make massive change. And I think 
I also had my own very minor weather experience. Um, I was in San Francisco visiting my dad. You know, San Francisco is supposed to be cold in the summer. And there was a heat wave and the city just completely shut down and it felt apocalyptic. It was, you know, obviously in the scheme of weather events, a very small one, but that was sort of my own personal part of, of waking up. And I was also coming to realize that the climate crisis at its core is an issue of social, economic, and racial justice, right? It's about people. It's about who's bearing the brunt of the climate, of climate change already. And it's about who's going to be most severely impacted. While I was sort of integrating all of this, I started to have conversations with friends and colleagues about how the American Jewish community wasn't currently mobilized in all our people in power to confront this crisis. Here was the existential issue of our time. And we need all hands on deck. And that includes the Jewish community. So I wasn't looking to do a startup in my 50s, you know, having worked for major Jewish organizations, but really felt like this was a moment where we needed to mobilize um, our grassroots. We needed to mobilize our institutions uh, really to confront the climate crisis, as we say, at Dayenu, with, with spiritual audacity and bold and bold political and collective action. So uh, talking about that in your organization's mission statement, you talk about this term, spiritual audacity. What mm-hmm. is spiritual audacity? So I, I really believe, first of all, that the climate crisis is, it's not only a political issue, a ecological issue, it's also an issue of our soul. This is about what our collective future will bring. And that means that our response needs to be spiritually rooted. Uh, We need to be able to draw on our history and our experience as Jews, having faced, you know, existential threat many times throughout our history, um, and being able to really resource the Jewish community to respond from this, not just from a tactical perspective, but also from a spiritual perspective. That audacity piece is because I think this is a moment that really calls for bold action. This is not something we're going to uh, solve incrementally. Uh, This is something where we really need to dig deep and respond with bold and courageous, courageous action. So if we could go a little deeper, you know, I think a lot of times when people think about spirituality, they think about like a gorgeous Friday night service, or they think about how they (laughs) felt like when they walked away from the chuppah at their wedding, or they think Mm -hmm. about how they felt when they saw the Grand Canyon, or when they saw the Northern Lights, or when they experienced, you know, what Heschel would talk about as like awe or, or radical amazement. They don't often think about spirituality when dealing with something like the climate crisis. So help me understand that bridge. What does the spirit or spirituality have to do with mobilizing to confront all of this scientific stuff that's happening in the world? So I think there are a few parts to it. One is that the reason that we feel anxiety and fear and all sorts of hard feelings when we think about the climate crisis is because what's at threat is what we love. It's our Earth, it's our families, it's our communities, it's our lives. What's at threat is the very things that we cherish. I think that that causes a spiritual rift, if you will, or a it's a threat. Research shows that American Jews, 80%, according to 
statistics from actually a few years ago. So I suspect it's actually more than 80% of American Jews are concerned about the climate crisis. It's actually like the number one issue in the 2020 survey of Jewish voters. And most are not taking meaningful action. And I think there are two reasons. I think one is people aren't sure what to do. But I think the other reason is that it's hard to face the truth of what's at stake on an emotional level, on a spiritual level. The fact that without massive change, we're hurtling towards a world in which much of the earth will become uninhabitable, that our children and grandchildren might not have enough to eat or clean air to breathe or water to drink, that many major cities and areas of the country will be underwater. And it's almost like it's too much to take in. So I think we disassociate. I think we turn away. We distract ourselves. It's like, how can our souls and psyches bear such a painful possibility. And so I think in that way, it is a profoundly spiritual issue. And part of how we need to respond is yes, with meaningful tactical campaigns, Sayu, you know, runs a lot of campaigns to give people meaningful ways to take action. But I also think people need spiritual resources. We actually created a set of, of workshops that we do around the country giving people sort of a Jewish context to make some space to confront, you know, as the kids say, all the feels, you know, to confront for some people, it's grief, for some people, it's anxiety, for some people, it's anger, for some older generations, it's guilt, uh, and to make space for that. And then to move into active hope and courageous action. Spiritually resourcing folks, I think, is also part of how we respond in an authentic way, where we're not just disassociating, we're not just like putting our fingers in our ears and turning away, but actually making space to experience, even if just for a few moments, everything that it brings up for us. So Dianu has this initiative that you call Spiritual Adaptation Workshops. And in those workshops, you talk about this idea of cultivating spiritual courage. How do you do that? How do you cultivate spiritual courage? How does that work? There's a woman named Joanna Macy, who's sort of the godmother of much of this work. And we've adapted her work that reconnects in a Jewish modality. So there's a, a spiral that we follow that starts rooted in gratitude. What is it that we love in the world? As Jews, we have many, many brachot and ways of acknowledging all of our all of the things that we love. And I think it's so important to start from that. We then move into really making space for the anxiety and the grief and the loss. And this is all done through uh, Jewish texts and experiences and conversations. Um, it's a very experiential workshop and making space for all those things that we try to avoid feeling because it's just so hard. And that we believe part of how we move into courageous action and spiritual kind of integrity is by making space to actually really feel that. And then to move into active hope, because we still have much we can save. And then ultimately into courageous action. And we know that our Torah and our history as a people are among the things that can sustain us, like empowering us, giving us courage. We think about Nachshon walking into the water, you know, up to his nose to part the sea, or the midwives risking their lives to birth babies or Esther saving the Jewish people, right? And we have a long history of workers and organizers coming together to fight, whether it's labor unions or partisans banding together to fight the Nazis or refuseniks. We are part of a long chain of history. And so that's also part of the spiritual courage that we cultivate. And then I think the other piece of building a spiritually rooted Jewish climate movement is also all of the ways that we sustain ourselves in the work. 
by cultivating new Jewish climate music. Um, we're about to to start a, a Jewish climate fiction workshop by bringing music and and ritual into all of our our actions and our work and grounding it in community. Like we don't have to do this alone. And I think that's such an important part and also where building spiritual community becomes so important to our response to the climate crisis, that this is not an individual, this isn't about individuals, this is about collective change and this is about doing this work together. I love the idea of thinking about this work as grounded in spiritual practice because I think so often there's like this divide in our minds between what is spiritually moving and enervating and invigorating and then work, which seems, you know, when we think about Shabbat, right, there's the work week and then there's the spiritual time. And the idea that this is all interwoven to me is really empowering, especially when you think about how difficult it is to get people to make these transitions in their life. You know, I was spending a few minutes the other night watching some mindless television and the old movie, The American President, was on, you know, where Mm. Michael Douglas plays the president and Annette Bening plays the lobbyist for an environmental organization. And the theme of the movie is that she is lobbying for a 20% reduction in fossil fuel emissions while he's focused on a crime bill. I was thinking about the fact that movie came out in 1995, Mm -hmm. almost 30 years ago. We were talking about this 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And this idea that it's been so difficult to get traction in people's consciousness. Tell me a little bit about why you think it is that even though this has been apparent for more than a generation, almost two generations now, Mm -hmm. why it is that it's still so difficult to get traction on this idea in people's consciousness? So the first thing I want to say is that part of why it's been hard for people to really get this is that there has been an explicit campaign by the fossil fuel industry for people not to focus on it. And I know that sounds, less that sounds like a conspiracy theory, um, fossil fuel, Exxon knew in the 1970s. And there's you know lots and lots of documentation that shows that. Um, they knew about climate change. They knew the impacts of burning, extracting and burning fossil fuel, and they hid it. And, and there's a, there's actually a really interesting book called Merchants of Doubt um, that shows how the oil and gas com- industry actually used the same playbook and PR firms as big tobacco did to cast doubt on climate science for decades. This has been part of what we were supposed to not pay attention to very explicitly. The very concept of the carbon footprint actually came out of the fossil fuel industry. If you're going to pay attention to it, wanting us to pay attention to our individual actions, our consumer habits, um, as if this is really something that could be solved by each individual, which is simply not true. And I hope you know we can talk a little bit about that. I just want to say part of this is a very orchestrated campaign of many decades to not pay attention to this. I think, as I said before, it's also really overwhelming. Can you even fathom, Dan, what the world might be for our grandchildren if we don't take serious systemic action to avert the worst of climate disaster. And that's just like, it's too much to bear. So we turn away, right? We get busy with our lives. We get busy with our to-do lists and our families and Netflix, you know, all these things that we do to not pay attention. So I think part of what Jewish spiritual communities offer are spaces 
and, and what I hope Dainu offers, you know, with our uh, Dainu circles across the country and collective action is a way to pay attention, to not feel like the only option is to not look and to really cultivate in community ways to take collective action. And I, you know, I think people, as I said before, I think people don't always know what to do in the face of such a big, complex challenge. And I think there's a lot of um, just emotional reasons to look away. And so part of the response to how we mobilize the Jewish community, how we mobilize as part of a larger climate movement is by giving people meaningful ways to take systemic action, because people know it's great to compost. Everybody composting is not going to get us where we need to be to have spiritual resources um, and community for people to really have the space to to confront this on a, on an existential level as part of how we how we act and live in this moment in history. So I think you this idea of the tremendous sense of disempowerment that people feel is real, whether China builds more coal-fired power plants or the power of the fossil fuel lobbies, as you described, kind of seem beyond my capacity to influence. So I think as you described beautifully, right, the the problem almost seems too big. So given what an individual can do, not everybody mm-hmm. can drop everything and start a nonprofit, right? <laughs> what is an individual's personal responsibility in this moment? I think, first of all, I'm so glad you're asking this question, because I think that people often focus on their own individual practices. And those are important, right? Reducing meat consumption, reducing our carbon footprint, those are all important. Um, And communal practices like greening our institutions, also important. But if every single person and every single institution lowered our carbon footprint, we would not avoid the most catastrophic impacts of climate change. Bill McKibben, the climate journalist and activist, says, I love this quote. It's one of my favorites. He says, the climate crisis no longer yields to individual actions. There's no way to make the math work one vegan dinner or Tesla at a time at this point. The most important thing an individual can do is be less of an individual and join movements sharp enough to make change. Right. So it's not like, where do I buy a car? It's like, or what car do I buy? It's what cars are is Detroit manufacturing? Not where do I bank, but what are the biggest banks in the world investing in fossil fuel and how do we take action? So, and I want to go back. I think that the fossil fuel companies want us to focus on individual consumer habits and don't necessarily want us to be kind of building collective power. So that is where systemic change comes in. That's where collective power comes in. You know, Dainu, for example, has a network of Dainu circles, um, more than 100 of them across the country, that are small groups coming together to mobilize with often in their own communities around climate policy and climate uh, actions, and also with national Dainu campaigns. An individual doesn't have to figure out necessarily, you know, what's the strategic move here. Dainu and other organizations across the country, as part of a, a larger climate movement, are identifying what are those levers for change? What are those policies that need to change on a state and federal level? We just passed historic federal climate legislation, the Inflation Reduction Act, investing $370 billion in clean energy. That came from collective action over many years from people like your listeners on this podcast. How do we 
have impact the banks and asset managers that are continuing to build fossil fuel infrastructure who are continuing to extract and drill. We know that basically two things need to happen. Like it, it can feel really complicated. At the end of the day, there are two things that are going to help us avert the worst of climate disaster and keep temperatures from rising those two degrees that scientists tell us are a, a tipping point for catastrophic impacts. One of them is we need to keep fossil fuels in the ground and unburned. If we keep burning fossil fuel, the emissions will keep going up and up. And the other is we need to transition to clean energy as fast as possible. And the role that any individual can play is by becoming part of this larger effort. It's by joining, you know, creating or joining a Dianu circle or another local group that's taking action and really becoming part of these larger, these larger campaigns. Um, it's also about who do we elect, right? That's another huge lever for change. Um, part of why Dainu has run to and Chutzpah 2020 and Chutzpah 2022 and gearing up soon for Chutzpah 2024 is getting out the climate vote. We know that we need leaders who can be bold on climate. So all of those levers for change, getting banks and asset managers to stop funding the expansion of the fossil fuel industry, passing policy on a local and federal level, and who we elect are all levers for change. It's a question of not just feeling overwhelmed, but actually plugging into all sorts of really amazing work that's happening um, so that we collectively can not just stop the bad, but build a more just and livable future for ourselves and for our children and for our grandchildren. I love this idea that the individual's responsibility is to embrace the spiritual component so much of what Judaism has taught for centuries is that that spiritual connection is found in the bonds of community that we forge with each other. You know, the entire narrative of what accounts for Jewish spirituality is the entire people gathered as one at the foot of Mount Sinai, and it's when they come together to be one with each other that that's where they feel a sense of oneness with the Holy One. This idea that the way that we're going to confront this big huge scientific problem, which is how do we adapt to new technologies, how do we adapt to new realities, is by becoming more secure in communal foundations, to me, is really powerful as an idea. But at the same time, there is this other element that I think also tugs at the heart. Kamal Dervish and Sebastian Strauss of the Brookings Institution suggest that Part of the resistance to more aggressive action in confronting greenhouse gas emissions and transitioning to faster and bolder forms of mitigation comes from the fact that there will be winners and losers in this transition, right? There are going to be significant costs that are borne on really vulnerable people in the immediate term. So, for example, if we stop mining coal, then coal miners in West Virginia and Poland and other places are going to lose their jobs with nothing necessarily immediately to replace them. If we stop cutting down the rainforest in the Amazon, then Brazilian agriculture will suffer. And these are poor farmers, right? So how do you balance the, the moral yes. claims of those who argue that climate mitigation strategies will hurt vulnerable people with the moral claim that we understand that inaction may threaten vulnerable people too. Well, that that last piece, that is the key piece here. What you just said, and I know, I, I just, I, this, it, it may sound kooky. This is not kooky. Those are literally talking points from the fossil fuel industry. 
this idea of if you, of, of this is making these changes are going to hurt the most vulnerable people. The truth is, inaction has much more severe impacts on vulnerable populations. So the most impacted by climate change are Black, Brown, Indigenous, poor people. That's just a, that's just a fact. Currently and in the future. So the costs of inaction are way, way larger. Um, and this is why climate justice is so critical. Ask any organization uh, on, from a, emerging, any frontline activists, like they're fighting this because they know that inaction brings much more harm upon them. Um, so this is really, I can't stress this enough, exactly what you read is practically word by word a direct talking point from the fossil fuel industry um, as a way to keep this change from happening. Now, why, you know, presumably they also have children, um, but at the end of the day, their model is is profit. They're driven by profit. That is their business model. And so they're doing everything they can to hold on, um, including those sorts of those sorts of arguments. So when we think about those arguments, is it that those arguments are not true or Correct. is it that those... It's not... Yeah, sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> um, it is not true that doing less is better for frontline communities. It's simply not It's simply not true. Now, we need a just... Trans That's why people talk about a just transition. How do we transition as fast as we can? Because this is a, like... This is also... We don't have years and years and years to do this. So a fast and just transition to a clean energy economy and future is what we need. The just part is ensuring that communities on the front lines most impacted, those most impacted by climate change right now are part of the solution, part of making decisions and part of ensuring that as we have this clean energy transition, it is not leaving out those people or those places. So that's, you may have heard there's like a, this 40% um, in the Inflation Reduction Act is targeted for those communities for that very reason. And the work now is ensuring, you know, this big piece of legislation passed. And there's a whole set of side deals going on that you might recall from all of the negotiations that frontline communities and their allies like us are trying to stop the Mountain Valley Pipeline, for example, or other things. And now it's the work locally in the states to ensure that all of that money gets used, you know, quickly and appropriately and centering communities that are most impacted. So the idea is that when I bound together with other people to make a difference with organizing around the climate crisis to advocate for things like bills that create good policy in America or international initiatives that make a difference, that in advocating for those things, I can also advocate for mitigation strategies that secure those who will be hurt by the transition while at the same time advocating as hard as I can for that transition. Yes. And, you know, the, the thing that I want to say that is um, particularly true about the climate crisis is that it will, it's a paradox. It affects certain populations first and worst. That's already happening. When we talk about the climate crisis in the future, it's not in the future, it's happening now. It also affects everybody. 
And I think about like the early days of COVID when it affected everybody, but it did not affect everybody equally. Certain populations were really impacted much, much more. And that's true with the climate crisis as well. Um, so when you say there'll be winners and losers, the challenge is to ensure that that is not the case. That the losers, if you will, will be the fossil fuel industry, finally. I mean, it's on a downward slope, right? Like if you were to draw a graph, wind, solar, cheap, getting much cheaper, getting much prevalent at much faster rates than we even imagined possible. Renewable energy is on the upswing in a major way, and the fossil fuel industry is on the downswing. And it's a question of how fast we can make that transition, and how do we ensure that people and communities are not left out of that. But it's not something like I, I sometimes think that the Jewish community forgets, first of all, many are already feeling the impacts. I mean, ask the Jew in Northern California. Many, you know, there are also poor Jews, right, we, that are living in communities that are already impacted. I mean, you live in Florida, you know that this is not something in the distant future. Um, so I think holding that, that it doesn't affect us all equally, we need to really center the climate justice issues, and it's going to affect all of us. Um, I don't know if you saw the Extrapolations, which is an Apple TV series of eight episodes that just just dropped. And there's a an episode in uh, the third episode, which is a fictional synagogue in Miami. And David Diggs plays the rabbi. Uh, we're actually doing a program with them um, in a few weeks. And in this uh, episode, the water is rising. Everyone's wearing rubber boots to synagogue. And David Diggs, as the rabbi and the uh administration and sort of the board of the synagogue are trying to figure out what to do in order to save the physical structure of the synagogue. Um, I won't, you know, give away uh, what happens, but what I will say is that, that, that it really lifts up both that this is not in the distant future. I think that episode takes place in 2047 and that it's not about simply saving our edifices, right? I can't just save the physical structure of the synagogue when Miami is going underwater. Um, because we are all interconnected and we, climate change does not know the borders of countries or the borders of buildings or the borders of people. The climate crisis, I really believe, is something that we all need to bring our people in power to, and that includes the Jewish community. So it's funny that you mentioned that episode of extrapolations because I was the rabbinic advisor to the director for the production of that episode. <laughs> and if you if you watch to the end, you can see the special credit that I had. I was actually on set when they were filming that back oh, in so October funny. of 21 uh, and consulted on that episode. And I think that one of the messages of that episode, and I encourage everyone to watch that episode, not just because I was involved in producing it, but because <laughs> the issues are brought out in such a dramatic way, has to do with the fact that confronting this is going to create a whole bunch of moral challenges. Maturity, Bill McKibben writes in his amazing book called Falter, he says it means making choices to commit to one person, one career, one community. If we admire individuals for those traits, it's possible we can learn to admire societies for the same things. You know, morality means self-regulation and self-restraint. I could do that, but I won't do that because it's wrong. And so I think so much of the choices that we have to make are moral choices. I could drive that car, 
right? But I won't because it puts more climate, more carbon out into the atmosphere than I should is one thing. But also, I could spend all my time on my own affairs, but I'm going to sacrifice some of my time to join with others in making a difference around climate change because that's the right thing to do. One of the things that the character in Extrapolations confronts is how do we deal with this balance of advocating for our own needs while at the same time recognizing that there are communal structures and moral questions that need to be asked and answered. So when you think about sort of the morality around these issues, what are the things that we need to restrain ourselves from? How do we process this moment through a moral lens? So I don't think restraint is necessarily the moral frame that I would first go to. I think it's about owning our agency. I think that it's about not having the luxury, not giving ourselves an out to not take action, to live through this time and not take action and be complacent is to be part of, I think they have the Elie Wiesel quote as part of that episode, right? That I'm not going to get the words quite right, but that basically, you know, to do nothing is to be complicit. The core, right, the core of the Jewish people's narrative is our journey out of Egypt, out of Mitzrayim, which we just celebrated, you know, Passover, out of a narrow place, a place of oppression and genocide, like so many people have faced. And when we leave and we're wandering in the desert, God reminds us that the path forward, that our redemption is not in the heavens and beyond our reach. Loba Shemaimhi. It's not too far away. Our redemption is in our hands. Right? God says it's not too baffling for you or beyond your reach. It's not in the heavens or beyond the sea. No, the thing is very close to you in your mouth and in your heart to do it. So the future of the world is in our hands and it's in our hands as in it's up to us, but it's also in our hands. We have the capacity. We have the science. We have the resources. We can do this. We have the opportunity to avert the worst of climate devastation and build and imagine and then build a really different future. So I think that the moral the moral question at the core is, will we sit this out? and be complicit in what will be our kind of devastating future? Or will we really step up, realize that we have agency, that there are real things we can do by joining movements that are taking action to make systemic change, to make the kind of change that we need in the timeframe we have to build a more just and livable future for everyone. So Bill McKibben, who you quoted earlier, said, very few people on earth ever get to say, I am doing right now the most important thing I could possibly be doing. If you'll join this fight, that's what you'll get to say. Jenny, I know that you get to say that every day. The work you're doing is so important and inspiring, and I really want to thank you for taking time to be with us today. If you want more information about the amazing work that uh, Rabbi Jenny Rosen and her team at Dayenu are doing, Go to their website, dayenu, D-A-Y-E-N-U, dot org, and you'll see not only what they do, uh, but ways to get involved, and you can contact them to join their 
incredible movement to make a difference around the climate crisis. Jenny, thanks so much for making time to be with us today. Wonderful to be with you, and thank you for, for your work. Essential Questions has been made possible by the Temple Beth El Jewish Ideas Incubator, committed to creativity and innovation in modern Jewish life. Many thanks to our production team, Jason Reeser, Amanda Brenzel, Jake Harris, Susan Stallone, and Eliza List. Special thanks to Jake Harris for original music and Isabella Tenenboim for the original artwork. You can find this podcast on Apple Music, Spotify, and the Podbean app, as well as on Temple Bethel's website at tbeboka.org slash essentialquestions. You can rate us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify so you can spread the word, and we certainly want to know what your essential questions are. Email us at eq at tbeboka.org. We look forward to reading your comments and to addressing your ideas in future episodes. I'm Rabbi Dan Levin, and thanks so much for listening to the Essential Questions podcast. Mm-hmm.